Well, such a lovely ball over the top here, and the run in behind for England is by turn. What a chip! What a goal! The winner is Qatar. It is not safe for someone like me to watch the World Cup in Qatar. The legacy of this tournament is the change in society. More than 6,500 migrant workers have died in Qatar since it won the right to host the World Cup. Officials fined a million US dollars while lobbying them to the Qatar. I'm rapidly falling out of love with football. I just wonder what's the point anymore, you know. If I speak, I am in, in big trouble. Hello and welcome to Pro Revolution Soccer, a football podcast that doesn't leave its politics at the turnstile. You've joined us for this, the fifth and final episode of our special series covering the World Cup in Qatar. My name's Keir Milburn. And I'm joined, as usual, by my rather dashing co-host, Tom Williams. Tom, how's your week been? Hi, Keir. Yeah, funny, funny old week this week, as I've, I've had to say goodbye to a, a friend who I made through football. Uh, the funeral this week of my friend Mark, who is my, my mentor in many ways. He he basically made me do my UEFA-B coaching badge through the British Army, uh, meaning a socialist, anti-imperialist at various points, uh, barking orders at squaddies, which I'm not sure has happened all that often since Trotsky and the Red Army. Uh, but another example of how this game can, can actually bring people together, and I know that he would have loved, we'll get onto this later, the performance of Leo Messi this week. Thanks, Tom. It's a bit of a, an, an emotional week for you then. Uh, as I said, this is the last, the last in this run of pro-revolution soccer the fifth and final episode of, of our special. Um, so I think what we'll do is have a little recap of, of the tournament, perhaps what we've learned over the tournament, what the tournament's thrown up, and also what we've sort of discussed a little bit on the podcast. Uh, and then we're going to turn to the question that every leftist podcast should end on, what is to be done? <laughs> we should get a nice, clear answer to that by the end of the show. In a moment, we're going to be joined by author, academic, and commentator David Wearing. But before that, let me just say this. If you've enjoyed this series, and indeed the excellent articles that Navarra have been publishing alongside it, then why not support Navarra Media so we can keep creating the political, and for that matter, football content that you can't find anywhere else. To become a supporter, head to navarra.media slash support and set up a donation for as little as £1 a month. Okay, all the preliminaries out the way. Tom, in a minute, I'm going to ask you what what we've learned. Uh, we're going to discuss what we've learned over the last week and all over over the last uh, the last five weeks. But before that, I want to bring David in and find out what he's been making of the tournament. David, what's your take on the on on the Qatar World Cup? I mean, perhaps both on and off the pitch. I mean, actually, let's start with the first question: Have you been watching it? Have you been boycotting it? No, I've been watching it. I mean, I did sort of agonise a little bit about it at the beginning. Um, and completely understand why some people just can't bring themselves to watch it, given what's gone into the production of this World Cup, not just the construction of the stadium, but the construction of all the infrastructure, how they won the thing in the first place. I get all that. Um, my view has been, if I can use my expertise as an expert on um, uh, UK Gulf relations, if I can use the platform that gives me to, to frustrate, help frustrate their attempts to sports watch it, then I've kind of, <laughs> I'm telling myself that I've earned the right to watch the games by doing that. Um, maybe that's a, <laughs> maybe that's a bit self-serving. But yeah, I mean, I have been watching it um, and and really enjoying it on the football side. I think it's been a really good 
open tournament with some great upsets and you know the whole Morocco run to the semis was like wonderful for I think any neutral but wonderful for the Arab world as well been really keen to talk to you about this actually David I mean I sort of um I referenced being a socialist anti-imperialist earlier I suppose my um my 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 understanding of of anti-imperialism are informed by by probably two people um a little guy I like to call V.I. Lenin, who um, <clears throat> those of you who've seen me uh, might say I've also based my look on, uh, but also your your work, you know, stumbling across your work about six or seven years ago has massively in- enhanced my understanding of what it is to be an anti-imperialist. Now, with that in mind, it would be nice to go a bit deeper on what you what you've made of the uh, the Moroccan run. Is it, you know, can we take much from having football teams as avatars of of these sort of identities or these kinds of interests? Um, is that a bit silly or is there is there something we can actually take from that? I mean, that's that's really kind, first of all, Tom. Thanks very much. I'm, I'm, I'm glad I played that well. Um, in, in terms of football teams as avatars, I think is a really interesting question. You know, in the World Cup, most of the games you've got no personal stake in, but you're watching them and you're gravitating towards one team or another, and then you're trying to justify it. And in the group chat I've got with friends who are watching it as well, there are these arguments about who we should be supporting and why, and you can always find reasons why actually this team is full of terrible people, this team's full of great people. Um, I think with Morocco... It is what it means, you know, I don't know much about the players themselves. I love the fact that they brought their families with them, that that was part of the manager's sort of approach was to let them bring their, you know, bring their mums, bring their families. And it's got this, they've got this huge positive energy around them, which is lovely. Um, I don't know much about them aside from that. But what I've been interested in is the way that the team has been received in the Arab majority world. Um, I mean... The Palestinian cause has had a lot of... There's been a lot of scope for the Palestinian cause to have its voice within this Qatari World Cup. And that's partly, you know, the, the, the kind of opportunism of the regime who allow political space to be... political space for some causes and not for others. But still, the people of the Arab world are taking that... Um, are taking that opportunity. Um, and around the Moroccan um, run to the semi-finals, there's been a lot of expression of pro-Palestinian solidarity by the team, by the fans, and I mean just a, a kind of wider sense of. I, I was reading one article in the New York Times by a Moroccan writer yesterday, who's basically saying, "This is what this is who we want to be in the global community. We want to be who we are. We're." You know, people with a love of football and a sense of humour and a sense of exuberance. We don't want to be, you know, people who are repressed by dictators and who can't speak their minds. Um, so if they've taken it as an avatar for them, you know, then I, I think that's, that's, I mean, that's something that's that's moved me anyway. Yeah, it's, 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 different. it's perhaps different. We all do that where we sort of try to justify why we're watching one team or another. Uh, it, particularly our own teams, <laughs> and try to map our politics on. It's a dangerous game, and it probably only exists in our own heads. But then there are the world, the real world effects, basically. Uh, and it, it, it's hard to work out exactly what's going on um, across the Arab world. And of course, Morocco's got a very strange sort of status in the Arab world. Be, you know, it, it doesn't, lots of people in, in, in Morocco, lots of the, the players were, you know, weren't speaking Arabic, or they were speaking a, a dialect of Arabic. 
And of course, they've also been, you know, the, the thing we've heard most watching a match, the, the semi-final against France, etc., was this is the first, this is the furthest that a an African team has been in the in the World Cup. And so, you know, there, there's lots of lots of things being mapped on, um, and I'm sort of interested in whether, you know, particularly like the the, the Palestinian flag being displayed, uh, there seems to be some sort of internal signalling going on within the Arab world. I, you know normal working class arab arab people are signaling to their their rulers that um that then you know the rulers who who seem to be happy with the situation as it is now are palestine that this is not you know this is not something that is acceptable i, I mean this is me reading it with, without a lot of knowledge david so have you got more insight than that yeah no care that's absolutely right um i mean there's there's the there's the attitude of the regimes in the Arab majority world, um, which is often, you know, sort of the, the pretense of standing up for the Palestinian cause, but the fact of collaborating with Israel at some level or another. Um, and then there's the feeling, you know, amongst the general population, which is overwhelmingly um, hostile to, um, you know, peace deals with Israel or reconciliation or diplomatic relations with, with, with Israel, we're absent a, a resolution to the Palestinian, um, you know, to the Palestinian issue. Um, I think it's something like eighty-eight percent of the people across the Arab world, when they oppose diplomatic relations, unless the Palestinians have have justice. Um, and there, there is that dissonance between public opinion and the stances of the regime. And when I, I was talking earlier about the opportunism of the Qatari regime with regards to that, because let's face it, there's no expression of any political position in Qatar which is not approved by the regime at some level. They'll shut you up if I don't like what you're saying. So if you're expressing something politically, it's because they've permitted it, you know. Um, so there's that authentic expression coming from um, people from across the Arab world who've come to Qatar to support various teams. And there's also the fact that the Qataris have allowed it to be expressed. And what's, what I think is going on there is that, I mean, Qatar, all, all these regimes have their own diplomatic strategy, have their own sort of soft power strategy. Qatar, unlike, say, Saudi and the UAE, has been a bit more of its rivals within the Gulf has been a bit more focused on cultivating soft power within the, within the, um, within the Arab majority world, um, either through its relations with the Muslim Brotherhood um, or its ostensible um, support for the Arab uprisings in 2011. And more recently, you've got this uh, reconciliation agreement between the UAE and Israel um, and other, other Arab regimes in Israel. The, the so-called Abraham Accords talked that Saudi Arabia might join the Abraham Accords. And I think Qatar, in its rivalry with its Gulf neighbours, as well as in accordance with its broader strategy of trying to cultivate soft power in the Arab, Arab majority world, has been aligning itself with the Palestinian cause, not least through its allowing um, the World Cup that it's hosting to become a forum for expression of solidarity with the Palestinians. I think that's a highly opportunistic uh, move from them going alongside a really authentic expression of, um, of support for the Palestinians. It's interesting that David mentioned this need that we have to cheer for somebody. Because of the, the, the sort of the compromise, the way that the compromised nature of this, of this World Cup... I have at various points found myself feeling, you know, not not feeling that emotional investment, not being able to feel that emotional investment. 
in various games actually. After one set of games, I I went over to to see my anarchist mates and uh, and we watched we watched pro wrestling, which along with the uh, the England football team is another emotional hangover from childhood that I tend to indulge. And as well as the delicious vegan cuisine and the great company, I found myself thinking, well, there's something else here that I wasn't getting through football. And what I realised was that the, the, the lads at FIFA had managed to had managed to arrange for there to be no one to cheer for, basically, in these in the in the football that I'd been watching earlier in the day. In this World Cup, you know, the, the, it, in some cases there, there's nobody to cheer for. And I, and I think, you know, in wrestling, of course, and yes, I know, it's fake, in wrestling you have heels, a.k.a. bad guys, and you have good guys, a.k.a. baby faces, and most people cheer for the baby faces. In this World Cup, there are vanishingly few baby faces... And the main reason for this is the desire of, you know, capital basically to use football for its own ends. You know, we're robbed of, we're robbed of people to cheer for. Can we can we move on to talking about Leo Messi on that note? Yeah, I mean, the the sort of narratives have been set up, and and basically the football has sort of like dictated that narrative. Is that like Messi is is this instinctive genius? Do you know what I mean? Um, who's been in this in this sort of long distance battle with Ronaldo about who is the greatest player of the era, perhaps of all time. And Ronaldo is more of the, you know, the person who's who's determined, who's who's basically gonna just like, you know, practice the same move over and over and over and over again, etc. Whereas Messi could just do it instinctively. Um I don't know why that would make us prefer Messi over Ronaldo. <laughs> there are wider things as well um, to do with, um, you know, the football teams they played for, et cetera, et cetera. And um, off, the, off the pitch affairs, we do believe that we can't mention them for legal reasons. I mean, Messi's no saint, is he? Um, it, it, you know, he's, he's become a... Uh, he has unfortunately become the tourism ambassador or a tourism ambassador for Saudi Arabia. And has you know been involved in controversy over taxes and things like that. So in some ways, it's weird to find ourselves standing for a, somebody who seems to love money basically as much as as much as he and his father do. Uh, but it's the thing about Messi, and this I suppose goes back to this kind of this need, I suppose, to separate the artist from their work. Is that it's it's difficult not to feel something almost transcendental when you watch him play because it feels like he's harnessing some higher power or channeling some other energy that ordinary players might access, maybe once in their whole careers if they're lucky. But he's doing it almost in perpetuity. It's sort of precognitive. It's like the bits in Donnie Darko where he can see what's going on going to happen before it actually does. So yeah, I mean, he uh, Leo Messi has brought me. A great deal of joy over the course of the course of his career. I've been lucky enough to see him play in the flesh several times. Um, so, Leo, I assume you're listening. Good luck in the final, son. But pay your fucking taxes. I mean, that thing about separating the artists from their work is a is a is a real question always, isn't it? And that's true with literal art, with music, um, and and with football as well. I mean, there's that. Ellie Davis and Rian Jones edited this excellent book under my thumb, which talks about precisely that. Mm. And I think it's it's a it's a really difficult one to articulate and to rationalise. 
as as someone who you know socialist anti-racist who's who's listened throughout his life to 60s 70s rock hip-hop who loves art i've i've had like 40 years of training in compartmentalizing this stuff like liking (laughs) the works of truly awful people so i feel like i'm in my element almost in this world cup um (laughs) you know get it and respect anyone who feels like they can't stomach any of that you know, whether it's the music made by certain people or the art made by certain people or 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 or, or certain footballers or teams. Um, I for some reason am able to to separate the two out. With with Messi, it's just a question of my first World Cup that I remember at least was eighty six. And that was the Maradona World Cup, obviously. Mm. And at ten, you're old enough to know what's going on and young enough to be just captivated by the magic of that guy. Like, to me, like, who's the best? My head says Messi because of the numbers, but my heart says Maradona because that guy was just an alien. He was he was incredible. And it was the joyfulness of what he did, the artistry, the exuberance. I don't think Messi quite has that. But I think for a lot of people who want Argentina to win and want Messi to win, for people of my age and older, it's partly going to be that was the archetypal World Cup or maybe it was 70 or, or 58 you know where the greatest player in the world leads his team to the trophy and I think a lot of the romance around Messi and Argentina is that kind of that kind of same feeling um if 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 you can compartmentalize it of course perhaps we should move on a little bit and talk about like what what have we learned over this World Cup what's it thrown up I mean one of that we've already talked a little bit about that because you know the team. The team that that emerged and surprised everyone was Morocco. You know we haven't really talked about the the football they played, but you know they played some great football, <laughs> particularly against Portugal. They're so organised. It's like be- it's kind of beautiful yeah. to watch. It reminds yeah. me a little bit of South Korea actually in two thousand and two. They took the way they they were all just yeah. sort of like working in in unison, but not boring. Like basically no. brave as well. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I don't know how we unpicked that. I I, I know that the. That the king of Morocco put a lot of money into into developing the sport in the country and these sorts of things, you know, these these untidy details that we 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 pick up when we look a little bit closer. So Morocco were the breakout team, obviously. Um, when you look at the football, a lot of upsets. Perhaps it's because it's you know in November and you know European teams are tired. We, you know, perhaps that's that's partly what's going on. Perhaps we are looking at a change in. In, in world football on the standards of world football and, and, and there have just been improvements around the globe. But what other things have we learned of this tournament, perhaps? Something I wanted to ask David about is, obviously there, there's been a lot of discussion of the kind of the strategy of the the Qatari regime and how they benefit from this. But how does the West benefit indirectly or directly even maybe from that yeah i think that's really important to discuss what i've been trying to get across whenever i've written stuff or done interviews about this over the past whatever it's been now month or so is that yes we've got to talk about these abuses in Qatar. we've got to be talking about the you know the exploitation of migrant workers um the deaths of migrant workers um the, uh, the, the suppression of LGBTQ rights or the denial of them rather, the denial of women's rights. 
but we can't just focus on it as a Qatari problem, as though, you know, authoritarianism is hermetically sealed within the within the borders of Qatar. I mean, authoritarianism, state violence, repression is a transnational phenomenon. You know, it's rare that you'll find a regime which is able to impose itself on its population in that way on its own. And Qatar's history is the history of the West. It's the history of Western power as well. Qatar, the modern Qatari state, has been, has developed and and formed and emerged and sustained itself through its long relationship with Western power. I mean, up till very recently, you could just regard it as a straightforward Western client or puppet state, up till very recently, historically speaking. I mean, the, the British went in there in the 1800s into the Gulf before they knew that oil was there, originally because they wanted to use the Gulf like Afghanistan and what was then Persia as a kind of buffer regime to protect the Indian Empire from the Russians. But once oil and gas come in, like the Gulf create, it, it attains its whole new significance. And the British have cultivated these relationships with, with the local rulers. They're, they're not formally colonised, but they're effectively pledged to loyalty to the British, like you will have no foreign relations with anyone but us, that kind of protectorate status. And once oil comes into play, the way the oil revenues are used over the, for the 20th century um, to buttress the regimes, like to pay for um, the imports of huge amounts of weapons and for what we call petrodollars in, um, in academia, the wealth that results from the sale of these hydrocarbons, oil and gas, goes to the West, goes into Western financial systems, purchases Western arms, binds these states to the West in return for which the West provides them with the means of violence and the ability to to resist calls from below from democ- for democracy, you know, which were particularly through the 60s, uh, through the 50s, 60s and 70s, there were major grassroots nationalist movements, socialist movements tied to the trade unions in places like Saudi and, and Bahrain to turn these regimes into republics. And the West helped the regimes to crush all that. That's one of the reasons why these countries are dictatorships now, why they're monarchies now, where around the rest of the world, monarchical forms of rule have gradually fallen away as people have risen up and, and you know, and, 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 and secured change. One of the key reasons that monarchical rule exists in the Gulf is because monarchical rule in the Gulf is useful to Western power. It enables Western power to maintain a specific relationship which it might not otherwise be able to maintain were the people of the region to have their own substantive say Mm. in how their countries are run. They might not want that Gulf wealth to go into the city of London Mm. or to buy these enormous, you know... um, weapon systems they might want to send the money elsewhere they might want to invest it in other ways they might not want to have you know this huge military expenditure out of all proportion to the size of their population and and, and stuff like that so to the extent that state formation in the gulf has taken this trajectory and ended up with this regime in Qatar and these regimes in the UAE and Saudi is to a huge extent because the West has acted as the midwife to the process of state formation in these crucial decades through the late 19th century, through the 20th century and into the the 21st. And so the West, sorry, this is turning into a long answer, but I think it's important Mm. that people appreciate this stuff. Um, 
it's not a question of we on the West, on the one hand, have our values. And so much of this discourse in the last month has been framed along these at best facile and worst racist, at worst racist sort of lines, where we on the West have our values and they have their values. And those are two separate things, you know. And like we shouldn't... Um, you know, the people who've been actually as apologists for Catcher have said, oh, we shouldn't be trying to impose our values on them. As though they're two separate things. They're not two separate. Let's not talk about their values and ours as, as though values are things that are determined by whatever, you know, something that's a proxy for race. Let's talk instead about how repression is a transnational project and people who resist it are resisting it transnationally you know civil society in the west and civil society in the gulf are trying to resist this against the elites on both sides that's a, that's a much better way of looking at it i find it baffling that you, that people are trying to hold this line that they're uh, that there's some sort of um cultural or, or, or ethnic basis to uh, to, to rejecting uh, universal values, etc., particularly at a time when there's an almighty feminist-led uprising <laughs> going on in in Iran. You know what I mean? I mean, one of the one of the things that we've we've gone back to on this podcast, one of the ways of thinking about this, and once again, you know, we we are aware it might be self-serving that we actually did want to watch the football, <laughs> but one of our one of our uh, our, our arguments has been that that football, both like international tournaments and and sort of domestic football. Is one of those. It is an avenue through which people can get a, a better sort of cognitive map of how global capitalism works. Not all of it, but but, but parts of it. Um, uh, I'm always reminded on of Owen Hatherley. I can't remember where he says this now, but he says, "Look, if you're if you're in this, if you're in London, you can you get a sense of global capital because you can just look down the city and see these huge huge towers. If you live in Middlesbrough, it's harder to get that because basically global capital is not interested in, in, in Middlesbrough." So football is one of those bits where you can actually see the 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 flows of uh, not not all of global capital, but you know particular elements of it. You know, oil wealth from from Gulf dictatorships flowing into clubs, buying clubs, etc. You know, U.S. hedge funds buying clubs and leveraging uh, to take them over, and you know these sorts of things, which people might not necessarily come across in their everyday lives, but like yet yeah, they they do have play a big role in determining how, how their lives go, etc. Absolutely. I think look, football is such an important example. If, you wanted, if you're in the business on the left of consciousness raising and political education, I mean, this is why your, your podcast and the work you guys have done over the last month is so important. It's such a tangible way in which you can convey to people how the system works. Um, and I mean, the, the thing I've spent a lot of my time talking about, the thing I'm really interested in is, is state violence. And state violence's role in, in in capitalism. I don't know if you, you know, Monty Python, Holy Grail, when the, the King Arthur's encounters the um, the anarchists, and the anarchists are telling him he's he's propping up an outdated system of government. You know, when the anarchist is Arthur's finally had enough, and he grabs this anarchist, and the anarchist says, "Come and see the violence inherent in the system." Yeah. That, that's basically me. That's my academic career. Come and see the violence inherent in the system. What, what what we're seeing here with Qatar is, as I've said before, not just Qatari abuses, but the <laughs> violence inherent in the system of like of global capitalism as a whole. It's really worth thinking about how the Gulf is a node within a wider um, within a wider system, and not just in terms of the the oil wealth, 
But in terms of the way these migrant workers are treated, if I could just mention this, because me and Tom were talking about it before I came on, and I think it's a really important detail that people don't perhaps quite appreciate. So the the exploitation of these migrant workers, at one level there's an economic value, right? You're paying, which, you know, anyone vaguely familiar with, you know, with Marx or Marx-ish systems of thought understands that, you know, you're paying these people next to nothing, they're, they're working under terrible conditions with minimal rights, and that maximises the level of profit that can be extracted from them. Um, that There is that. Um, every Western brand that's advertising in the World Cup is benefiting economically from the exploitation of that labour. FIFA is benefiting economically from the exploitation of that labour. Arguably, the broadcasters are benefiting economically from the exploitation of that labour because that's what made the World Cup possible at you know at a certain price. But there's more to it as well. If we if we're thinking about the role of the Gulf regimes in a particular form of capitalism, you know, and a capitalism which we have to appreciate is a state as project as much as it's a you know, bourgeois project or a project of capital. The state plays such a huge role. And in this system, if as a, you know, Western imperialist slash Western capitalist, you think it's important for the Gulf to be ruled by these particular people, you think it's in their interest for the Gulf to be ruled by these particular people, then this system where you've got foreign migrant workers are the proletariat within the Gulf, fundamentally, as opposed to a domestic proletariat. That's really, really significant and important and useful. Why? Because if your proletariat is domestic and it's got citizenship rights and it's got settled status and it can't just be thrown out and it's not that precarious within the polity, I mean, you know, precarious in the sense of Mm -hmm. residence and citizenship, Mm. then it's got the strength and the ability, at least to a greater degree, to challenge the regime and overthrow the regime. But the proletariat in the Gulf is South Asian. The proletariat in the Gulf can be expelled any time they want. The proletariat in the Gulf is super precarious. Sometimes they're not even allowed to keep hold of their own passports. They have to hand it over to their employers. I mean, if you look at the history of labour in the Gulf, it starts with the local people working on the working in the oil refineries, working in the ports, and then it, they, the ruling classes quickly realise that these guys are unionising. They're becoming sort of aligned with Arab nationalist politics in the 50s and 60s. So they quickly shift and start bringing in workers from other parts of the Arab majority world, from Yemen, from Palestine, from, from Egypt. But it turns out these guys are radical as well. And so there's finally a shift of people from outside the region who aren't connected to the Arab nationalist politics and who are also in this hyper-precarious situation. Now, you think about that system and the reforming of it. Qatar has been praised far too much for absolutely minimal reforms that had to be dragged out of it, sort of kicking and screaming sort of thing. They, they weren't praised for having reformed and they can now call it, oh, look, we told you it'd be a catalyst for change, didn't we, this World Cup? They were forced to give these small concessions, which they've not even really enforced properly in terms of the migrant workers. But if those migrant workers were given full rights where... You've come to this country, you work in this country, 
you play you play an enormous role in this country functioning therefore you should have the rights of someone who lives in this country like everyone else which is what should happen you've then got a tiny regime and a citizen population of about 250,000 sitting atop a proletariat of, what, a million or so people. And now politically, that looks a bit dangerous, doesn't it? So the point I'm making here is not just that this sort of extreme form of exploitation, I don't want to flatten, I don't think we should flatten the differences between forms of labour exploitation everywhere else in the world. Yes, there are terrible forms of labour exploitation everywhere else in the world. It's not like this is the only place where this sort of thing happens, but it is particularly extreme. It's not just the regime that benefits, it's the sponsors of the regime who Mm. benefit. It's everyone in the city who benefits from the inflow of, of, of Gulf capital into bank deposits, into portfolio equity investment it's the it's the it's the western powers who benefit from these regimes working in the way they do in who benefit from it in geopolitical terms it it rests politically and economically on the specific form of exploitation that these migrant workers go through and and and, i mean if, if that's not a you know a really important and illustrative and illuminating story that we can tell about global capitalism through football, then I don't know what is. I think that it, it, it's, mm. a, it's a really important way of understanding how these things fit together. I think you've, you've hit on something really important. I mean, if we're going to use this as a sort of a teachable moment, then we will need to examine the similarities and differences in how football exploits not only workers, but actually supporters and how we're exploited in our working lives or or indeed through renting. But in order to draw out these similarities and indeed differences, we need a deeper and more local, perhaps, understanding of capitalism in football, or else our necessary analogies will become a bit unconvincing and and too general. But what what David was saying there, you know, it really does, that that sort of disaggregation of labour, that that chimes with the disaggregation of labour practised in this country and all over the world via things like outsourcing of cleaning. You know, it's not the same thing, but but it's a version of the same thing. It's divide and rule. Yeah, and notice how the division is so often racialised, how Mm. either groups of workers and or entire polities are plugged into this system in a way that doesn't just exploit them economically, but is able to exploit them in a particular way through virtue, by virtue of how that group or how that polity is racialized. You know, the Gulf can be plugged into global capitalism and exploited like as, as monarchies, because that's effectively the role of these monarchies is to exploit the situation in a certain way, that can be justified through this orientalist discourse that says, oh, oh well, these are ju- that's just what these people are like, so it's right for us to arm them, etc., etc., etc. Orientalism there is playing a huge role in political economy. And similarly, you know, these South Asian workers who are being exploited in this way, I mean, that's how come the Indian side of my family ended up in Mauritius, you know, we went at least as part of that migrant flow of indentured labourers that um, you know that succeeded the slave system. You know, um, and again, it's racialized. So, I mean, I think that's really worth 
really worth people understanding when there's sometimes this attempt to treat race, race as, as identity politics as different from the real business of class struggle. We, we really need to get beyond that and have a serious understanding of how capitalism actually works, not in some abstract formula, but in, in reality. In reality, race and class have always been bound together. And, you know, the, the capitalism has developed precisely in that way through the racialized exploitation of labour in many instances. One of the dangers of us of us using football as a way to to sort of glimpse movements of global capital, but also what goes along with that is the movement of people basically following global capital, etc., migration. Um, one of the dangers of that is that you just get that oh my god, it's so big, what can we do? Sort of uh, problem, you know. And I'm trying to move us on to this question of what is to be done, which of course we we need to address in some sorts of ways. And so I suppose we have to come back to, you know, we all seem to agree that football can be this really useful instance of, like, pedagogical instance, if you want to put it that way, where we can understand the way the system works a little bit more. Um, But can it be something that produces some agency, you know, some agency to do something about it? And how do we go about that? I don't know if either of you two want to come in on that. Can I just suggest a couple of things at the international and the local level? I mean, locally, I think the big thing that football shows people is that something about neoliberalism in the sense that things that should be public goods end up being held in private hands and held hostage almost. Things that we should be able to take for granted end up being out of our control. Like, for example, you know, as a fan of of Charlton Athletic, um, we have over the last 10, 15 years my club being owned by a succession of utter clowns but utter clowns with enormous amounts of money who can just swoop in buy this community institution which like i'm the third generation of my family to support that club and like you know which is at the, at the heart of the local community which means a huge amount to people just swoop in and buy it and use it as a toy you know to like <laughs> people who, who seem to see it as some kind of, what well, I've made my money, wouldn't it be fun to own a football club or some sort of midlife crisis? Don't know what they're doing. Don't have any qualification to run it and run it into the grounds. And, you know, it causes huge upset for the people who are emotionally and personally invested, collectively invested in that club. And, I mean, that feels to me like an analogy for all kinds of things that have happened in the neoliberal era. And something that, virtually every football fan at some level has experienced outside of perhaps even the biggest clubs where, you know, that kind of external ownership has gone badly. You know, not everyone's a, a Manchester City or a Newcastle United. Most of us are a, are a Charlton or something like that where it's not gone well at all or you're worried about it going badly. And so perhaps something at a local level that can be done is talking much more about collective ownership of these Clubs. If we're going to talk about, you know, at the big level, renationalisation of public utilities, and surely at a local level, we can be talking about community ownership of our football clubs, popular collective ownership of our football clubs. I wish Labour had talked about that more between 2015 and 19, because then, you know, we could have been talking about collective ownership in a way that actually spoke to people at the level of their, you know, most resonant and deeply felt experiences. Um, I would. So I'd offer that at an immediate level and at a global level, going back to what we were talking about in terms of Qatar. I mean, yeah, it's huge at the level of the system, but 
you know, as people in the British polity who are able to be politically active and speak out and collectively organise in the British polity, I mean, we're far more powerful than people in most countries in the world. Britain is still a pretty significant state in the global system. It's more significant than maybe, you know, 180 other states out of 200 in the global system. Um, and Britain plays a particularly important role in the Gulf, you know, I mean, behind the US, sure, but it's still a major, major role that Britain plays, the amount of investment from Britain. There's, a, there's investment that goes the other way as well, which is really important in their economic diversification strategies. The British arms that go there, this war in Yemen that's been happening the last few years, they would have struggled to fight that without British arms. And so what we can do here solidarity doesn't just mean echoing what people in the other world other parts of the world are saying about their political struggles and it doesn't just mean saying we are with you we support you it means concretely what can i do given my socio-political geographical location how am i connected to your struggle so you know in terms of in terms of palestine you might think about how britain supports that apartheid regime, what concrete cover Britain gives to that apartheid regime in terms of arms sales, in terms of diplomatic support. And then you can focus on Britain's role and campaign against the extent to which Britain is an obstacle to the Palestinians' liberation struggle. And you can do that with the Gulf as well. That's what I try and do. You know, I mean, there are people, there are Gulf dissidents who I've been in contact with for a long time while I've been doing my work. The way I look at it is they tell me that Britain is one of the obstacles to their liberation. They tell me that one of the biggest problems we've got in holding our regimes to account is the cover that the British give for those, for those regimes in diplomatic fora around the world in terms of arms sales. So I see solidarity from my point of view as going after that part of the system that's, you know, that's repressing people in places like Bahrain. So, you know, we're not in the Seychelles, we're not in, like, Fiji, we're in a really important part of the system as people, as British socialists. And the work we do in challenging our government and its policies um, and trying to push alternatives and trying to shift public consciousness around these issues is massively important. We should never underestimate the amount of power we have and the ability that we have to do good in this, um, given where we are. I think that's, this is all really vital stuff, actually. And it, it ties in with our acid football thing, that this thing that Kira and I have been doing for a couple of years now with the World Transformed, which is consciousness raising tied to football. Because, you know, eventually we're going to need to have some sort of organisational form. But the, the sort of early stages of that, you know, if we're, if we're going to change stuff, we need to have some sort of organisational form. But the early stages of that are going to look like expanding our consciousness, basically you know bringing up charlton is is a really good good way of doing that because it's through the local it's through the concrete that that people are going to begin to sort of like get a better sense of this stuff i think and it's it's possible that the the wider effects of this tall empathy i think that fans have with commodity and with sort of exchange value might actually explain how quite a lot of fans unfortunately of the big six who would have socialist opinions elsewhere kind of set them aside a lot of the time sometimes when it comes to football they do do what we what we sort of like you know advise against which you know they do leave their politics at the turnstile and these sort of inegalitarian relations within football allow those clubs to com to out compete others on the pitch in you know quite a, you know in a not especially competitive way all the time at the moment though we do have the kind of exploiting class of football so it's club owners but it's also institutions like 
UEFA or FIFA, and indeed the media companies that make lots of money off of football, they're sort of struggling and they're bickering over their share of the surplus value generated. But but in that case, what's happening with fans? You know, they're, well, and, and what's happening is they're basically being sort of milked. Uh, and that's something that Marx does explore a bit in his work on secondary forms of exploitation. Um, but there are processes within football that run against that. You know, we might want to call it counter-pressing in this, you know, to put it a sort of a, a football, to apply a football term to it. You know, these, these processes, that uh, they're happening now. You know, they happened in the protests around the European Super League. Uh, you know, they, they are happening with, with people who, who are boycotting the tournament, but unfortunately that's happening in quite an individuated way. And, and, you know, further attempts to sort of, you know, let's face it, extend markets and merchandising beyond um, where, it, where it currently is, that they are going to happen and they need to be met with a more organised form of resistance and a more organised form of protest. But in order for that to happen, there needs to be this massive sort of raising of the consciousness of how that is happening, you know, at a local level to your club. How is that happening at your club and, and around your club, I think? And, and that's kind of what we're looking to do, you know, with this Acid Football project, of which I suppose this this podcast series has been has been a part yeah, I, I, perhaps our message should be this, like, you know, the European Super League is coming back or something that looks a little bit like it. It's sort of almost built into the structure of of, of of football these days because of the inequality between teams. Because if you're if you're if you're Man City, you know, not that many matches are actually competitive and, you know, they want to get more competitive matches. So they want to get these super, super teams to play each other, you know, that's just the logic of it, you know, and we don't want that. <laughs> that is the destruction of, of of football, of the traditional football that we love, basically, if we get a European Super League or something that looks like it and teams become franchises and perhaps they don't want two teams in Manchester so one gets moved to, I don't know, somewhere else. If you do love football, <laughs> you know, that you you need to start, we need to start preparing for the battles to come in a way. Uh, and and the way you do that, it, you know, the way all politics starts, the sort of degree zero politics is you get together with others, you discuss your experiences and you try and work out what's, you know, what the fourth, the structural forces that are constraining those experiences or guiding them. That's, that's how you start, basically. But hopefully, you know, this, this, this pro-revolution soccer podcast series has, has contributed to that. I think me and Tom will be doing more of these acid football sort of events where we, we get together and talk about football and we play a little bit of football, of course. Why not? <laughs> um, we should we should draw it together. Thanks so much for coming on, David. It's been really, really great, actually. Really enjoyed um, your contribution, not just about the Gulf, but like about, you know, the, the, the global structure of, of, of capital and how that relates to football. So, yeah, thanks a lot for coming on, Dave. No problem. Thank you. And Tom, thanks for doing the series. It's been really good fun, and we'll do um, we'll we'll see what happens to this idea of pro revolution soccer. We'll have a little meeting, perhaps after the Christmas festivities. Mm. So let's draw a line on on pro revolution soccer. We hope you've enjoyed it. If you want to see where me and Tom take the series next, then you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Kia Milburn. Tom is at um, Shirley Mush. David, how can people follow follow your work? What's the best way to keep in touch with, with that? Um, well, I, I do, honestly, I'll try and stay off Twitter, but I'll come on sometimes <laughs> if I've got an article out or something like that. So my, my Twitter is just David Waring. 
Um, but yeah, I'm not on it that much. And if I am on, I shouldn't be. So tell me to get off it. <laughs> <laughs> Good advice. Please tell us all to stay off Twitter. <laughs> well, there we are then. You know, the hollow irony in the lads at FIFA ruining to some extent this World Cup so that they can further enrich themselves monetarily via football is that the game has been the source of many of the most spiritually and emotionally enriching experiences, memories and friendships of our lives. And the practices and ideology that seek to limit access to this sublime sphere of cultural life have always been confronted within football. And they always will be. We think that it's time that we started doing that in a more organised way. And on that bombshell, we bid you farewell. <laughs>